Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Chris Flynn. Chris is the author of three novels, including The Glass Kingdom and A Tiger in Eden. And today, Chris joins me to discuss his latest novel, Mammoth. My name is Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I want to acknowledge the traditional owners and their ongoing connection to this land. Now, here on Final Draft, we remain committed to exploring the best of Australia's books, writing, and literary culture, as featured on 2SER, whilst maintaining social distancing and practicing community safety. And this means that I'm recording from home for a while. Uh, right now, I am under a doona that is perched on an ironing board. <laughs> So please forgive the occasional, uh, you know, changes in audio quality. I am going to keep bringing you the best quality show that I can. If you are loving the show, then why not share the reading adventures and the podcast with a friend so you can all enjoy great Australian literature uh, from the comfort of your home. Now, in Mammoth, in an auction house in New York, the bones of a mammoth and a Tyrannosaurus batar while away the hours before their sale by recounting tales of their past. They're joined by a prehistoric penguin, the pharaoh Hatshepsut, and a pterodactyl, and together the group take us on a journey into our modern world by way of the destruction us bipeds have caused to create it. So join me as we discover Chris Flynn's mammoth. I have an absolutely terrific novel to share with you today. It is from Chris Flynn. Chris is the author of three novels. You have met him before on Final Draft, discussing The Glass Kingdom, a surreal trip into meth production and regional Australian subculture. Today, though, I think things could possibly get even weirder as Chris joins me to discuss his latest novel, Mammoth. Chris, welcome. Hello, Andrew. Uh, Now, just for the set up uh we're in an auction house in new york it's 2007 and a mammoth a tyrannosaurus and a tyrannosaurus batar while away the hours before their sale by recounting tales of their past they're joined by a prehistoric penguin the pharaoh hatshepsut and a pterodactyl uh now the group take us on a journey into our modern world by way of the destruction us bipeds have caused to create it chris i i love that this could almost be uh, an Oceans-style heist story, but from the other side, as this unlikely group come together in the centre of New York. But let's let's start with that central team-up. Do you see your mammoth, Mammut, and Tibetar as more of a, a Tony Stark and Steve Rogers or a Felix Unger and Oscar Madison-type pa- pairing? And I'm actually not sure whether I need to explain those references to the audience, but uh, what, do you, what do you see? How, where do you see Mammut and Tibetar sort of sitting? You're asking whether they are um, rival superheroes or the odd couple. Yeah, are they are they just a strange pairing that uh, that come together through fate, or are they? I, I sort of saw the Tony Stark, Steve Rogers, kind of like political opposites who are thrown together out of necessity. Right. Well, it's, it's true that the Tyrannosaurus um, has a bit of a hankering to bust out of the auction house and. Uh, have his flesh back and go rampaging around Times Square and maybe eat some Captain America impersonators. Um, <laughs> so he, maybe he's more of the Steve Rogers type, whereas uh, the mammoth is the Tony Stark, the old, wise, uh, um, clever, or thinks he's a lot cleverer than he probably is um, character. But I kind of like the odd couple reference because all these bones have been 
It is. They're, they're, they're desperately random, those auctions. Those auctions are real and they take place every year and they are so bizarre and random. The bones of all sorts of creatures, um, meteorites, uh, huge gold nuggets, all sorts of things are on sale and sharks, teeth, and anyone can go in. If you or I were wandering along um, in New York and the auction, the auction house was open, we could go in and, and you can handle these things. There's the, the, the whole security aspect is, um, is pretty loose, to be honest. And so when they're on sale, those, when the auction actually happens, absolutely anyone can bid on things. So you could buy yourself a, a prehistoric shark's tooth for a couple of hundred dollars, or if you've got a bit more to spend, you could buy yourself um, the skull of a Tyrannosaurus, which the skull in the book sold at auction was highly sought after by... Um, Several celebrities, uh, Nicolas Cage and Leonardo DiCaprio, they fought over the Tyrannosaurus skull, and Nicolas Cage ended up winning the auction. Um, he paid $276,000 for the skull. I I absolutely loved that detail at the end and, and just thought it was absolutely... Do I have to travel so far, though? There was another little teaser at the end of the book, and is it possible that there is a Tibetar uh, tooth somewhere in Melbourne overwatching a dangerous intersection? <laughs> That's that uh, that sh- that shop in Melbourne um, that sells Venus flytraps and uh, um, uh, shards of meteorites and um, strange things in amber. Uh, I think they do have Tyrannosaurus teeth in there. Uh, I have not purchased one myself, but um, I'm sure if you're the sort of person who'd like to have a Tyrannosaurus tooth as a ne- as a necklace, um, you could you could easily find one. <laughs> Now, Mammoth, look, it has it has so much as as Mammoth and Tivata narrate their story. We see history unravel over thousands of years. Mm-hmm. We you give us environmental commentary. There's dialogue against racism. There's there's even literary criticism. Right. Did you have a, did you have a sense of wanting to range so widely as you wrote? Yeah, look, I love books of ideas, um, and I've felt a bit sort of constrained by the form in the past. Um, and once I started down the road of writing this story, I mean, it took me quite a while to get to the point where I felt brave enough to write it because when I became aware of the fact that there were megafauna bones on sale at auction and that you know President Jefferson back in 1800 was trying to secure bones to prove to the Europeans how big and great America was. And it just seemed like this massive story and I thought for a long time I thought this is going to be very difficult I'm not sure I've quite got the talent to pull all this together and it was only whenever I released myself from the anxiety of doing it and thought I'm just going to dive right in Um, and it it became this huge well it it wasn't really a swimming pool it was more the ocean that I dived into where (laughs) suddenly you, you you have access to just the entirety of human history and you're never going to sum it all up but um the great thing about history is once you once you delve into it um there's so many weird things that have happened in history and it that you couldn't even make up um so it became this sprawling novel where i just embraced everything that came along and um all the quirky little uh, side alleyways of history i was happy to um digress and go down them um and in a way, I had the perfect narrator because he's a 13,000-year-old um, skeleton who's seen it all. 
um, and is you know pretty uh, jaded and cynical about it. Um, and so it just became a it, it was the ultimate book of ideas for me because I was able to embrace any idea that came along whilst I was writing it. And um, your your mammoth uh, incognitum, he's he's from the American landmass, and of course, yeah, you you mentioned that Jefferson really wanted a mammoth, uh, possibly a live one, because he believed mm. that they might still be roaming <laughs> uh, right. to, to sort of show greatness. And you, I think I've I've read at least one interview where you sort of imply that uh, the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree these days. Maybe maybe you and I right now, we start a little rumour that, that Trump wanted it to be uh, Make America Mammoth again, but that, <laughs> that, the acronym, that the acronym was MAMA was just a little, you know, too Freudian for him or something. <laughs> it is true. The, the origin of the Republican Party is all about um, trying to, is overcoming inadequacy and this idea that America was this, kind of a crappy place that people went to um, out of desperation and why would you want to leave Europe? And so they wanted from the early days of American democracy to show the Europeans that no, America was an amazing place, that we have big animals there too. But they had no record of them because the only animals they could see roaming around America were, you know, the mountain lion or the cougar, you know, there was there was nothing huge. And so, and so they felt a bit um, inadequate. And so the early um, Republicans were dead set keen on proving to Europe that huge creatures once roamed the American plains. And, and you're right, they actually didn't know whether they were still out there or not. Because at that point, west of the Mississippi, I mean, there wasn't a lot of white men had, had gone out there to explore. So they didn't really know. <clears throat> and, you know, you look at the history of Republican presidents and they've always sort of done this. They've always tried to appropriate symbols of strength from the animal kingdom to show how macho they are. Um, and today still, I mean, Trump's sons, they are, they go big game hunting and, um, you know, he's, and he's very proud of that. They're still doing it. They're still trying to tell everyone, America's great, America's great. Okay, we get it. Like, why are you, why are you banging on about it so much? <laughs> I think this is this is our chance to tell people that you know they they're done binging Tiger King on Netflix. They need to get Mammoth. This is the <laughs> next this is the next story they need. And and as as Mammoth as your Mammoth relates his storied history since his his disinternment sometime in the early 19th century, mm-hmm. he intersects with a with a variety of, of fascinating hominids from post-revolutionary America to Dublin on the brink of an, an abortive revolt, Mammoth meets the, the, a variety of characters in there, historical or, or otherwise. So I realized as I was reading that I was at risk of being a little hominid-centric. Their, their stories became so much more relatable to me. So right. if, you could, if you could, please disabuse me of my biped privilege and talk a little bit about what the, the human story illustrates uh, of that deep time narrative that you have Mammoth relating. Mm, well, that period of history, when the Mammoth was actually dug up at the end of 1800 and, and the sort of four years subsequent to that, there were so many things happened in the world. There was... I mean, it was the aftermath of the French Revolution. There was the, as you, as you say, the, the aborted Second Irish Revolution. Um, there was a lot of a lot of people were questioning um, their place in the world and their place in time. Um, what you've got to remember is that at that time, um, men of science, and it was always men, um, they were also men of faith. Mm. There, and they believed in their 
their Christian belief told them that the that the world was about six thousand years old, and yet their um, and their profession as scientists, they were unearthing bones from the ground that were clearly a lot older than that, a lot older than that, and they mm. and, and and they found it very hard to reconcile these two things. Some did it quite well. Some some men of science were were willing to change their views and propose to the scientific community that the Earth was a lot older than we might have formerly thought or a lot older than that the Bible tells us it was. But a lot of others rejected that uh, com completely. And I think that sort of shows the the awkward schism in, in, in human nature where we believe what we're told until other evidence comes up and then it's up to us to decide whether we are willing to change our minds or whether we wish to stick dogmatically to um, our former beliefs, but at that at that time, digging up these ancient creatures and trying to reconstruct them, a lot of people were starting to realize, oh, we may not have been around for that long. There are there clearly there was clearly an age of reptiles that preceded us, and they were all somehow destroyed. This was like I mean, this, it's mind blowing to people at that time in early 1800s, which wasn't that long ago, mm. that that um, that the whole the whole of um, recorded time didn't revolve around us. That there were things that were that, that lived on the earth long before us, and for a long time, um, much longer than we had been there. Um, and um, yeah, well, I mean that, that that whole idea of destruction. Poor Tibata, he has positively has PTSD about the idea of another rock hitting the earth. But <laughs> I mean, in terms of, in terms of the scientific thinking that you're the evolution of scientific thinking that you're describing, I found Moses Williams story was particularly interesting. He was, he was a black man, a, a, a slave or a former slave or his, um, his status uh, uh, or, or ownership was, was still sort of something that was uh, at issue in, in the <laughs> part of his story you tell, but there's a particular scene where you have him face off against, French naturalist uh, Georges Cuvier, and Cuvier is sometimes known as the father of paleontology. Uh, right. So dinosaurs for, uh, for for us lay people, but but also uh, he's also famous for expounding a racist these racist theories of separation of of three different races, which of course sees him put Caucasian on top, and and Moses is a, a black man and and thoroughly disagrees with this. So these these discussions really for me they highlighted the fallibility of of scientific theorizing at the time and perhaps even the way that we now also have to to remain credulous but also look to evidence it was a a, a hugely um, difficult thing to it, it is still a difficult thing for the scientific community to get their heads around i've heard scientists say that they really detest georges cuvier even mm. though they at the same time admire him because he was, you know, basically the first person to coin the term dinosaur and to really talk openly about the fact that the Earth um, was very, very old and there were reptiles around before us, and he was ridiculed for that at the time. Um, but it, and his, and he's one of the, I think, um, one of the few men whose name is on the base of the Eiffel Tower. So he's considered to be a founder of modern, modern scientific thought. But at the same time, he had these horrific um, theories of scientific racism. Where you know he he believed people were split into three different races. Obviously, the Caucasians at the top and uh, and um, black people at the bottom, um, and um, that became very much adopted by the scientific community for a long time. That stuck much more than his theories about the age of reptiles, 
and really informed modern science to uh, you know a, a disgustingly close time to our our own lives and there are probably some still some people who subscribe to those theories um so it's it's that real um that really interesting time in history where people are sort of stumbling through um trying to work out who we are where where we fit in and they're getting some things right but they're getting some things terribly wrong i mean i have i have even heard that those those theories go so far still as to influence in a in a perhaps subtle but definitely their way uh, things like medical thinking and where the different, as, as Cuvier would have put it, different races have different predispositions and the like. But I, I thought it was also really interesting um, the, the way this engagement happened in the book. Uh, it got me thinking about what we would probably, if Cuvier were alive today, if Cuvier were, were making uh, these, these thoughts and having the, these theories today, we would probably be having a very um, avid debate around uh, what we what we call cancel culture, you know, do we acknowledge Cuvier's achievements or is he cancelled because he has actually, um, he has actually done these horrid things in creating this, these racist theories of, of race separation. That's right. I mean, he basically said there was three distinct races of man, the Caucasian, the Mongolian and the Ethiopian. And um, you're right. If, if he was, I mean, you could imagine someone expounding those theories today and they'd probably get quite a lot of traction on the internet. Um, um, but um, it is interesting that this is one of the fathers of modern science. You're right. Do we do we just assume? Do we just completely discredit him, or do we accept some of his other theories? And Moses Williams, you mentioned him. Um, he was a the, he's the first African American artist, really. Um, he was a silhouette artist in America who was a slave and eventually was manumitted by his owner, who was uh, Charles Wilson Peale, the naturalist and portrait painter, and he appears in the book too. And Moses Williams went on to have a very successful life as a silhouette artist and purchased his own property and um, and is not really talked about that much in history, um, but was a really interesting and amazing man who received an education because he was brought up alongside Peale's son and off he went on tour and was occasionally humiliated by it because he had to dress as a Native American Indian in order to promote the uh, tour of the mammoth bones when they went on tour around different towns and they took the bones over to France to you know, shake them right in the faces of the French scientists. And um, I just thought it was a wonderful opportunity to place Moses in that uh, direct confrontational role with the, with the very man who claimed that he couldn't possibly have the abilities that he does. And from Moses' story, Mammoth uh, then goes on to travel through Ireland. He goes back to sort of antebellum America. Mm. But I, I, I don't want to follow the bipeds too much. We've, we've become a little bit biped-centric. And, <laughs> of course, I want to come back to this idea of storytelling because Mammoth is a story about telling stories. You have this incredible... Right. You have this incredible gr group, whether they're the Avengers of fossils or or the Friends group of fossils. Um, but of course, mo much of what they are telling us and what you write is considered prehistory, because in our modern age we put a premium on writing stuff down. Uh, so Paleo, the ten thousand year old penguin, he is an active and vocal critic of the credibility of mammoths' storytelling. Right. Um, 
he he doesn't like it not, not only because it, it lacks lols in his opinion, but it's also far too embellished for the memories of a fossilized mammoth. He believes, have you know, how could mammoth know all of these things? What did you want to say here about the storyteller's art and the way we we tell history, the way we tell memoir? Right. Well, I'm very interested in how much unacknowledged fiction there is in personal accounts and memoir. I mean, I think the, the storytelling urge runs very deep in us. And we obviously have a bit of a tendency to exaggerate whenever you're telling someone something that happened in your life. You may, we always make ourselves out to be slightly smarter or funnier or braver or even sometimes more tragic in retrospect. And so I just thought it was interesting to have Mammoth do that too. He's recounting history. He was there but he's adding little flourishes to make for a better story, which is exactly what we do all the time. Um, I think when you look at the sort of modern intersection of things like Instagram and personal confessional and reality TV star politicians and, you know, and often unaccountable media, we've sort of resulted in us. We've fallen out of love with the truth a little bit. We sort of prefer the story rather than the truth, even if it ultimately hurts us. And so I wanted to make a little commentary about storytelling and how we tend to believe a story um, um, if it's well told rather than the truth if it's boring. Is is there a troubling irony then for you in, in just how entertaining Mammoth is? Because, I mean, one thing that a story is also is a is a fantastic vehicle for information and you have included so much that is verifiable in mammoth but then mm. also you've you've included you've embellished you've i want to come to probably one of your best your greatest embellishments in the story in a minute but what was it troubling to you the irony of of what you were you were saying but also doing well it is sort of funny that he would do it but um it's kind of what i do myself so i i, I really didn't mind that uh, mammoth is getting but i i wanted him to be pulled up on it so by having um, Paleo the Penguin constantly questioning how he could know something or whether he is making something up because he maybe wasn't there and this is secondhand knowledge, that was a little um, commentary from me on on the art of novel writing and the, and the art of writing memoir and how, um, I mean, I've read lots of memoirs where I've been jarred out of it because I've suddenly realised that we've got a lot of verbatim dialogue and I thought, well, how, obviously some of this is just made up to make the people sound that little bit cleverer than they actually were. And once you've, once the spell has been broken, then it's easy for the whole thing to come crashing down. Mm. So, um, yeah, that was, uh, my little, my little jibe and poke at the memoir genre. Um, before we leave, before we leave paleo alone, he is, he is one of your, your team, uh, alongside Tibetar, Pterodactyl, Hatchips, the the hand of the, well, perhaps the hand of the uh, Egyptian <laughs> pharaoh. But they are they are more than just objects in an auction house. They are more than just historical curiosities. They are voices, and they are vividly realised voices. Where where exactly did you get these voices from? How how, for instance, <laughs> did you decide that Tibetar was was a somewhat petulant... Uh, I, I mean, I almost saw uh, Tibetar as, as kind of a, a, a 90s punk skater boy from S Southern California right. in, his, that, uh, in his voice. <laughs> that's kind of how he comes across um, because I decided that how on earth would you 
choose the voices of these creatures that are very old. And um, for a start, they're all speaking English. And how do they know that? Um, so I came up with the framework of they learned English by observing the, the humans around them. Um, but it will be related to the humans who are living in the age when, when their bones have been dug up. So the mammoth was dug up in 1800. So he learned his English from you know, quite well-educated Americans. And um, he sort of talks a little bit like Orson Welles. And the um, Tibetar was dug up in the 90s and um, spent a lot of time in a warehouse in Florida. Um, and so learned English from the guys who worked in the warehouse. And he's got a lot of 90s slang and 90s references. Um, the penguin um, was um, blown out of the ice and then taken to Boston, where he was hung over a bar for um, for over 100 years. So he speaks a little bit like Bill Burr. Um, so that was a bit of fun to um, assign them a personality according to what time in human history that they've been dug up and we've just recorded the audiobook and um, with a, an amazingly talented voice actor who called Rupert Degas who does voice for voices for Disney and a bunch of animations and he's done all of the voices um, and it was really great fun working with him to try and work out who or how each of these creatures would sound um, and so I'm really looking forward to hearing the final version of that. Just reading their voices is is one of the great thrills of Mammoth because when you, you, in terms of the way you, just the visual style of the book, in terms of the way you punctuate, there is no obvious shift except for the voice of the character as they are discussing things. And I, I found like it was it was so easy. You flow so well between the voices. So that was just that was a terrific. A thrill and enjoyment in reading the uh, book. That's good because um, that, that was a bit of a concern. There's no um, overarching authorial narrator. So the characters are speaking to each other, but there's no, you know, speech marks or he said, she said sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so you have, you, uh, that was yet another reason to have very distinctive voices so you can tell who's talking and, 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 wh and when they're talking. Now, before I let you go, I... I think I'd be remiss if I didn't at least pay a little bit of attention to perhaps the greatest character that you, you have in the book. And it's a character that, as I understand, may, may well have existed, but you don't have historical record for. And this is, we, we first meet Kiva in, in France, where she woos and then uh, appropriates Mammoth's bones. And you follow her story, uh, much, much to Paleo's consternation, beyond what it would seem Mammoth's ability to know her story. And it, it struck mm -hmm. me that there is, there is a love of the character in the way you follow her story uh, because so much of it would have required you to interpolate into history. But it's, it's a fascinating story. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about Kiva and, and where she came from? Kiva O'Neill. That's really interesting that you say that because um, a few, I mean, the book's not the book comes out on Tuesday, the 28th of April, um, and it's been read by quite a few people already at, you know, at this time whenever we're recording this. But um, the a lot of people have been saying to me that they love Kiva. And they one person wrote to me and said he spent 15 minutes searching the Internet to try and find out about her before he it finally dawned on him that 
I actually had made her up. <laughs> I, only was... spent, I only spent two minutes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she sort of popped out of my head a little bit. Um, the O'Neill family do live down the road from where my parents live in Ireland. And they do have an old, um, an old castle. Um, and I looked into the O'Neill family a little bit. And she's probably a bit of an amalgam of a few of the O'Neill women from history. Um, um, the O'Neills have incidentally have lived in this castle down the road from my parents for, you know, since time began, basically. Um, that's the castle that's uh, now sli- slightly derelict and haunted and um, several seasons of Game of Thrones were shot there. Um <laughs> which happened, happened, of course, after I left. Um, nothing ever interesting ever happened whilst I was there, but once I left, they started shooting an HBO show there. Um, <laughs> but, wow. yeah, so um, Kiva's journey, she goes from uh, France where she um, pinches the bones, takes them back to Ireland, tries to sell them and uh, in order to raise some money for the Irish Revolution, and she ends up following the Lewis and Clark trail to... Um, to a very sort of a strange place. Um, yeah, she was a great character to write. I actually, I really loved writing her and um, she became almost the most real person in the book, even though she is the one that's completely made it up. It was interesting. I, I, I hope I'm attributing this correctly, but it is, um, it is Mammoth who repeats the, uh, the adage that history is is written by the victor, and it seems mm. like Kiva's Kiva's story is a, a fantastic example of a story that may well have existed, but we have no reason to suspect that it would be told because, in the grand scheme of history to that point, women were not the victors. They they rarely sat in the seats of power where they got to to tell and 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 pen their own stories. And I, I thought that was really interesting. Uh, no, and she's. And she's an ordinary person too, and and the lives of ordinary people um, were just never really recorded. A few years ago, I had this, what I thought was a super clever idea of writing a book called The 99ers, and it would be looking at um, the lives of ordinary people in 1999, 1899, and 1799, because I was curious to know if everyone had that sort of pre-millennial tension, um, where they were worried about whether the world was going to end or not. But when you start to look into it, it's it's really hard to find out details of what ordinary people thought in 1899, let alone 1799. Um, generally, history records the, the, the lives of the wealthy, the privileged, um, the successful, and your ordinary person like Kiva, their thoughts and fears and loves were never really recorded. So I wanted to um, put someone... Uh, from the lower classes, uh, front and center in in this narrative, and especially a woman from that time who was very, very capable, as a lot of women were, but um, but just didn't have the opportunities that uh, that other people had. Mm. It is it is such a fantastic narrative, Chris. And uh, if you are curious, we have not mentioned uh, its central figure, Mammoth. Uh, Mammut uh, in the last minute or two, but I am speaking with Chris Flynn and we are discussing his new novel, Mammoth. Uh, at the beginning, I tried to encapsulate it uh, as as literary criticism, history, engagement with uh, with with racial racialized and raci- racist views. 
environmental criticism. Chris, you've done mm. so much with this and it's so entertaining. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me. Oh, thanks, Andrew. That's been great. That's it for this great conversation with Chris Flynn. Chris's latest novel is Mammoth and it's out now through University of Queensland Press. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. Click subscribe in your podcast app. You will get a great new great conversation every week. And why not rate us and recommend us to a friend and share the love of Australian literature? My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Until then, I wish you happy reading. Bye now.